A movie came out last year called Don't Look Up. I don't know how many people watched it. It's a black comedy, which is a sort of phrase for a, a comedy that's funny but not funny. And um, it starred uh, Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, and a whole bunch of other people. The movie is about these scientists who are looking up into the sky and they discover this existential threat. You know, the hum humans are going to be wiped out because of this meteor that's heading for Earth. And so they sound the alarm. They go out and they, they spread the news and everywhere they encounter people who just want to laugh at them, who want to diminish them. Oh, you can't be serious. Oh, it can't be that bad. And, you know, just all these kinds of things. They do anything but take them seriously and try to do something about it. Uh, the one solution that is finally uh, kind of looked at um, is more feeble than anyone was hoping it would be as well. And you can watch that movie if you want. I, and I'm not sure if I should recommend it. There's lots of edgy stuff to it. But it's an interesting picture of warnings going unheeded and people being put in danger, sometimes mortal danger, because they haven't paid attention to the warning signs. So I think of the little city of Pompeii sitting under the shadow of the volcano Vesuvius, right? And everyone's going, man, it seems a little shaky these days. What do you think's going on? But no one actually moves, and so the city is wiped out when, this, when, the, uh, when the volcano erupts. Or I think about the Everest climbers who are so determined to get to the top so they can check it off their list that they don't pay attention to the weather warning signs, and many people end up dead on the mountain. Maybe it's the story of a doctor giving you warning about your blood sugars or a strange mass in your body, and if you ignore it, you do so at your peril. Or maybe the message from the bank that says you're overdrawn. What are you going to do with that message? What about the good opportunities that are missed because we didn't heed a message? I mean, what would happen if you got a letter from somewhere saying you have received an inheritance beyond your wildest dreams and you never opened the letter? Or you got a scholarship for some prestigious university, full ride, just never showed up to class. What a missed opportunity. So we, are we paying attention to the most important things, the warnings, the opportunities that are coming our way? What if we're missing a warning or an invitation that is really a life or death situation? I want to anchor us this morning in a verse in Ephesians chapter 5 as we look at the gospel of Luke. We're going to look, we're, I'm just going to keep telling you this phrase from Ephesians. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And I think that's a great sum, uh, sum statement of what Jesus is going to want to teach us today. Because the gospel of the kingdom comes to us as life-changing light into darkness. And the question is, will we let the light do its work? So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 29. It says, as the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It's a good warm-up for a crowd, hey? He says, it demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, here, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented of Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in spite of going, his ministry going viral, Jesus is not impressed with his social media stats. He knows that social status or brand loyalty is a very fickle thing, and that's not what he's doing. He's not just doing tricks to just impress a crowd or build his brand. Jesus is leading a compassionate offensive against the destructive power of the enemy. But these crowds are continually demanding a sign. What does that mean? What were they wanting? It's that attitude that says, okay, that was pretty good. What else can you do? There's this kind of attitude of skepticism and going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think you're going to need to do a little more before I buy in. But they're seeing what he's doing as tricks and they're missing the message that's at the heart of what Jesus is doing, that the kingdom of God has come near. Maybe it's an avoidance technique. Maybe it's just dark influences that are blinding their eyes. But what kinds of those things happen in our lives? What signs do we want to demand of Jesus before we will get on board with his school for living in the kingdom of God? Are we looking for a show and missing the life-changing invitation in what Jesus is doing? See, when we're looking for signs... That keeps us in control of the terms of how God should reveal himself to us. But the trouble is, it's our terms that got us into trouble in the first place, that make us in need of salvation. We can't be saved on our terms. And Jesus says, you guys already have a sign. He's actually not talking about his miracles, which are definitely clear signs of the kingdom. He actually points them back to history to two different places where outsiders who no one expected to respond to God said yes to what God had to say to them. The first is Jonah and Nineveh. The Assyrian city of Nineveh was a pagan city. It had this reputation in the ancient world of being barbaric, violent, just harsh in the way that they treated other people. And Jonah emerges from a watery grave to preach doom. That's, that's his whole message. 40 days and God's going to bring it on you. And they repent. Sackcloth and ashes, the whole thing. And God relents. He pulls back and says, fine, I will not bring doom because they responded. 
The other story is Solomon and the queen of the south, or as you read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba. Sheba was probably sort of southern Arabia or Ethiopia, a good two or three months of travel. And she hears of the reputation of this Solomon guy who is so full of wisdom. And she says, I have to see this for myself. So she gathers up all these tributes and she goes for this royal visit to King Solomon. She sits with him. She listens to him. She gets involved with what what he's doing and discovers that everything she's heard is true. And she erupts in this praise. How wonderful it must be for people to live under your kingship, Solomon. This is another one of those how much more lessons that Jesus often uses. He's saying if these outsiders to God's covenant with Israel will respond when God shows up, then how much more should you, now that I, the Son of Man, is is among you, how much more should you respond? But instead, they're an evil generation. They're not willing to accept God's terms for their formation. So how do we do this? How might someone demand God's terms instead of listening to the signs that are around them? Okay, I I can see how being a Christian changed my friend's life, but there's no way God could change me. I've heard good answers for my questions, I think, to to what Christianity is all about, but you know what? I am going to insist God shows up in a big blazing light before I believe. I can see how unique this community of Christians is, but, and you know what? It's probably good for them, but I don't need it. I, I know the Bible says that I should, but you know what? I am not confessing my wrongdoings. I'm not sharing my faith. I'm not giving some of my resources to the poor. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to serve anywhere until I get a really clear sign from God. Yeah, I can see that people change the most when they get disciplined about growing in their faith, but I'm just counting on God giving me a good magical zip, you know, zap, and I'm, I'm better. Jesus calls all these attitudes evil. According to the, in the message translation, he says the mood of this age is all wrong. His generation has allowed Satan's destructive influence to dominate their thinking and blind them to the kingdom of God in their midst. And that makes God's chosen insiders worse at responding to the message than the Gentiles, than the broken, than the poor. Luke often does this as you read through the Gospel of Luke. It's often the institutional religious insiders that are closed off. And it's the broken, messy poor, you know, meek people that are open to the kingdom. Now, Jesus sounds a word of warning about the judgment. He's talking about when God brings this age of history to an end and everything that has ever been done is put out on the table and brought into the light. You ever heard that phrase, you're on the wrong side of history? It's usually used by a group of people who believe they've finally become the enlightened ones, and if you don't come along with them, you're on the wrong side of history. The Bolsheviks said that the Tsarists in Russia were on the wrong side of history. The Nazis said the Jews were on the wrong side of history, and you, you hear that phrase being used in political dialogue even today. 
But Jesus says at the true end of history, every person in the world is going to stand before the Lord of history. And in the Bible, to be on the wrong side of history means refusing to bow the knee to King Jesus. Now, why would we we be kept accountable to this? The Bible says that the signs are everywhere, and we're accountable for them. There's warnings, there's invitations. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 14 to his disciples. He says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Like, believe my words. I'm speaking to you here as a representative of God. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And there were many of those in Jesus' ministry. The words of Jesus were recognized by many of the people who heard him to have an authority unlike anyone else they'd heard teaching. So much authority that they could heal people. They could cast out demons. And Jesus' work has, can, can be seen all throughout history, of changing lives. Here in this room, there are so many people sitting here who are signs of the kingdom of God. People who's, who, who have seen God come through and answer prayer, change direction, rescue them from, from addiction and all kinds of things. The signs are everywhere. And Jesus says that makes us all accountable. When the end comes, will we find ourselves on God's side of history It's interesting because Jesus says when that day happens, it won't just be God holding judgment. He says that those who responded to the message will stand as witnesses against the people who did not. The people who responded play a role in God's judgment regarding the people who refused to respond. And what this is doing is pointing back to a vision that we find in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Daniel describes the coming of the ancient of days, this heavenly king who comes and, and, and you know, conquers all of the rebellious kingdoms of the world. And it, it says that when he takes his throne, this is what happens, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Whoa. Whoa. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that Jesus' followers will judge the world, will even judge angels. Judging is this, it's part of ruling. It's how things are taken care of. I've said this before, but Dallas Dallas Willard has said that apprenticeship to Jesus is training for reigning. Training for reigning. When we let ourselves be shaped by Jesus, by the same spirit that directed his life, God equips us to take responsibility in his kingdom into eternity. It's the best job opportunity anyone could ever be offered, and Jesus offers it to all of us. When we focus instead on training for our own agenda, it's kind of like training for a job that's going to be phased out of the market. None of us are going to be training to be a switchboard operator or an encyclopedia salesman, right? That's not a thing anymore. And when we train for our own agenda, it's training for a kingdom that A, is harmful for us, and B, is going to be phased out. 
When we reject the training Jesus offers us, it eventually will lead to us being exposed as unprepared for the kingdom that is coming. But apprenticeship to Jesus trains us for reigning. It trains us for taking responsibility in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes on to illustrate how his training program is going to work by using these images of light. Verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a cellar or under a, bush, uh, under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. When Jesus is talking about light, he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom that he has embodied in his own life and ministry. When that light comes into our lives, we're not supposed to just tuck it away so it can't do anything. The message is meant to be put on a lampstand in our lives. It's meant to expose all the places where we need to change and grow if we're going to be properly trained to reign. You see, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So what does that mean? How do we put the gospel of the kingdom up on a lampstand in our lives? Jesus calls us to consider what we pay attention to. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. In the ancient world, what you pay attention to was referred to as your eye. It makes sense, right? Your eye is a window and knowledge or light comes into your inner life through your eye. That would eventually or inevitably reveal itself in how you acted. If you pay attention to what is good, the message calls it, if you, if you, um, if you are wide-eyed with wonder and belief, it leads to wellness in your life in all kinds of dimensions. If you pay attention to what is bad, or the message says, if you're squinty-eyed with greed and uh, mistrust, then wellness is going to break down in your life. It's kind of an elementary truth, but we often ignore or discount it in our lives. When you get a warning about your diet, on your, the impact of your diet on your life expectancy, do you change your diet or do you just keep going back to the junk food or the alcohol? When you notice your spouse or your kids drawing away from you or closing up to you, do you lean in to figure out how you can reconcile or do you just let the, the distance grow? When you hear a sermon or read a good spiritual book, do you just pat yourself on the back and go, yeah, read it? Or do you really reflect on it, journal about it, wrestle with it, maybe figure out where you disagree with it, talk about it with your life group or your apprentice group, invite the Holy Spirit to show you where it's supposed to speak to you. When you're convicted of sin, Something that you've done wrong in your life, do you just beat yourself up for it but not change? Or do you ask God, okay, God, what are the truths I need to know? What are the habits I need to adopt that will lead me away from this sin? What are the influences in your life? Where does Jesus fit into that? Is he a significant influence or just kind of over on the periphery? How's that impacting you? Does it make you more like him or draw you away from him? 
It's a lot of questions, right? But these are the questions that help us to put the lamp stand, the, the lamp up on a stand in our lives. This is not just for our good, right? If the light is not transforming our character and making us more kind and more gentle, people see it, people experience it, people are damaged by it. But if the light is changing us truly, then it becomes a benefit, a blessing to others. So it's important to consider what we are paying attention to. Jesus says, take care that the light in you is not darkness. Kind of an interesting phrase, right? Take care that the light in you is not darkness. In Jesus' day, there were lots of influences, just like in our day, that claimed to be light. Religious authorities claimed to be able to judge between the work of God and the work of Beelzebul, as we heard last week from Pastor Spencer. Pagan religion claimed to represent the will of the gods. Now God was walking among them with all kinds of signs of his presence. So which one of these lights was a good light? Are all lights equal? Today you can get all kinds of self-help books, podcasts, and find some YouTuber somewhere or, or a talk show, and they all claim to shed light on the most important issues of the day. But not everything that claims to be light is light. I just want to flag three alleged lights that have been around from the beginning. Gnosticism, materialism, and chauvinism. Gnosticism, materialism, and chauvinism. Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis. And it was this belief that there's a secret knowledge out there. It was this idea that, that the material world was not as good or not as meaningful as the spiritual world. And they pit them against each other. So if you prefer to kind of dwell in your spiritual world more than you dwell in the ordinary messy stuff of life, you're, that's a Gnostic idea. If you believe that how you feel about yourself is more real than the actual physical design of your body, that's a Gnostic idea. If you believe that what you do with your body has no impact on your spiritual life and you can do whatever you want, you're thinking like a Gnostic. If you think that the answer to your suffering is to silence all desire, like Buddhism might say, that is a Gnostic idea. In early Christianity, Gnostics denied that a holy, perfect God would want to have anything to do with a dirty, physical world. He certainly wouldn't submit to suffering and death or even rise again with a physical body. Ick. That's kind of how they thought. They're the ancestors of anyone today who would want to just distill Christianity into its basic ideas separate from the, from the story that it comes out of. The story of real people in real life. Can you see those ideas in your, real, in your life? You ever find yourself attracted to them? Gnostic ideas claim to light the way out of darkness. But do they? The second is materialism. And uh, Pastor Spencer talked about this already last week. It's kind of an interesting opposite to Gnosticism. If you're convinced that, the only, that only the things you can sense or measure are real, that's thinking in materialist patterns. 
If you live as if meaning and happiness are only found or mainly found in your stuff, in the things you accumulate or in your experiences, the good times that you have or the sexual experiences that you have, you're guided by materialism. In the church, materialism leads people to think that God's main concern is to make you healthy and wealthy. Theologians who teach that miracles are nothing more than symbols or myths to signify some grand insight are materialists. And when church leaders depend more on secular business practice or social science than they do on the teachings of Jesus, they're drifting into materialism. You see those ideas influencing your life? Materialism claims to light a way to success, but do they? The, the last light that we encounter is chauvinism. And I just see this as an excessive prejudice for your own group. If you find an exclusive identity or value within your group over against another one, that's chauvinistic thinking. If you think another group is to blame for all of your problems or all the world's problems, you're dabbling in chauvinism. In Jesus' culture, many Jews thought that God loved them and rejected the Gentiles. Later in history, many people demonized and dehumanized the Jews. Men and women can be chauvinists against each other for lots of reasons. You can have chauvinism about your race or your culture, your political party or your ideology, even your religious tradition. In a polarized age, all kinds of isms make us say, I'm special. I'm inside. I'm safe. And you're not. Can you see the influence of chauvinism in your life? It claims to provide light for, for how the world is and where we fit into it. But it is, is it really light? Do you notice how all three of these lights try to tear things apart? They try to pull apart the spiritual world and the material world. They try to divide human beings into camps. Whose work is dividing it's Satan's work. He's the adversary, the divider, the breaker of God's world. But Jesus integrated the spiritual world and the physical world. He taught us to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And he came to unite people where sin and injury had divided us. The kingdom of God is about restoring what is separated and broken. But Jesus could see how the squinty-eyed, skeptical views of his critics was deforming their ability to see the kingdom of God. It was all over his ministry. They couldn't see the restoration that was going on. And I think the same things happen today. Jesus calls us to look at what we are using to light our way. What if it's actually producing darkness and deformity in you? What if it's tearing your world apart instead of restoring it? What if it is undermining your ability to take responsibility in God's kingdom?
Not all that glitters is gold, and not all that shines is light. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warns against people who preach a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel than that had been given to them by the men who were trained by Jesus. And he says, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He isn't an angel of light. He masquerades as one. So it's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Not every uh, messenger of light, so to speak, shows up you know, in a black cape and a black hat and scary light shining up on their face. They, they don't come and go, hi, I'm evil, you should listen to me, right? They come as angels of light, as masquerades of what the true light looks like. So what influences are you allowing into your life? Have you been struggling with dark thoughts and feelings? Has the way that you've been relating to people in your life got a tinge of darkness to it? Maybe the way you think about yourself has got a tinge of darkness to it. Or the way you use your resources or you influence others, is there a darkness to it? What is the correspondence between what you pay attention to and the kind of darkness that's in your life? The influence that is guaranteed to train us for taking responsibility, for reigning, is Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. And so after he's cautioned us with these hard words, Jesus finishes with an encouragement. He says, if therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. By putting your attention on the truth, on Jesus and his kingdom, he says you will become an embodiment of light. You will be entirely composed of light. Ruth Haley Barton has written that the, most, or the best thing any of us has to bring to leadership is our own transforming self. The best thing any of us has to bring to marriage, to our parenting, to our supervision of others, to our workplace, to our neighborhood, to our classroom, is our own transforming self. When you allow this true light that Jesus gives us to transform you, you become a lamp for others. You become a gift for others. Are you a gift for others? We don't become the light that God created us to be on our own terms. If we are our only source for morality or guidance or philosophy, we can't expect to grow or change. We will Go exactly where we have been going from our own wisdom. Jesus is the light of the world. And we become the light that we're meant to be only by making Jesus the supreme influence in our lives. See, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. How? In the Lord. So walk as children of light.
want to just give you a couple practical things to think about. How do we get this lamp shining in our house in all the dark corners? The first thing I want to recommend is life journaling. This is something our church has practiced for a long time. You can do it with any reading plan. We have one that we do as a church, but you can do it with any piece of scripture. And it just walks you through this process of paying attention. God, what is the, what is the verse you want me to pay attention to here today? What does it mean? How might I apply this to my life? And how do I want to respond to this? And I can tell you, this, this practice of life journaling for me has been a lamp for my life. It's been so significant in shaping me. And over years and years of spending time in Scripture, God has begin, begun to shape me with images of His kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the language of Scripture to help me see who God is and what He's like and who I am in Him. What difference could it make if you took 20 minutes the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, the end of the day, to just let the lamp of Scripture shine into your life. The second thing is life together. We talk about this a lot as well. This is being in community with other people seeking to be apprentices of Jesus in a life group or an apprentice group or joining freedom session. I can tell you I need this. It's easy for me to be a Gnostic, to read all kinds of theology and not let it actually impact my life. It's easy to be a materialist who just depends on my own strength and my own resources to get things done instead of really seeking after God's power in my life. It's easy to be a chauvinist who thinks everybody ought to think like me. But when I get in community with people that are different than me, different gender, different life circumstances, different culture. God begins to take these things in me that are separated and he, be, he puts them together. They check my tendency to promote my, my own agenda. They help me build bridges instead of walls. So this fall, we'll have a Life Together course as an on-ramp into getting into community for men's groups, women's groups, and, and uh, life groups that are mixed in all kinds of ways. But I really believe that God is inviting us to life change. And maybe this is something you have experienced in the past. Maybe you've never experienced this before. In the Gospel of John, the author writes these words about Jesus. He says, The true light came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right? They refused to see the signs. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is it time for you to let the, lamps, the lamp shine in your house, to get it up on the lampstand in your life? Jesus wants to invite you to receive his influence into your lives. He's inviting you to trust his authority more than your own. To admit the ways that you have let darkness rule your life and the ways that it has ended up hurting others. Jesus himself allowed all the forces of darkness to come in upon his life, laying down his life on the cross for us. All of that condemnation and hatred was absorbed into his innocent death so that we could be forgiven of our sins. 
And if you accept that forgiveness, if you lay down your own agenda, all of your terms for how you want to be saved, and you say yes to Jesus, then Scripture says that you receive the right to become a child of God, part of the children of light. See, at one time you were darkness, but now you can be light in the Lord. If you have received Jesus into your life, you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Just bow your heads as we stand. Lord Jesus, we stand in your presence recognizing that you are king. How how is the Holy Spirit shining a light into your life this morning? Where are you seeing the work of the enemy trying to separate your spiritual life from your physical life? to excuse you from acting on what you believe or to to cause you to just live in your own resources, to divide you from others, even within your own family, within your own uh, community. You see the darkness shrinking, or, or the darkness kind of creeping into places of your thoughts, your life. The Bible says if we if we bring these things into the light and we have fellowship with God and with others, and if we confess these things, He forgives. So Lord, in all these places, you're shining a light on us today. We ask for your mercy, the mercy you've promised us in Christ. Would you forgive us, Lord? Remind us again of our identity, that we are light in the Lord, children of light. Psalm 18 says, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus, would you teach us how to walk in the light of your presence and your word? in all that we do. Give us diligence to study and meditate on your word so that it really shines into every dark corner. Give us courage to move into supportable, accountable life together with others that keeps us walking as children of light. Lord Jesus, the light of the world, we welcome your presence in our hearts. Would you light us up this morning? We ask this in your strong name. Amen. Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light.